Well, good morning. Everyone okay? I appreciate Pastor Kevin making sure y'all all awake. Excited to be able to continue to worship together. Thankful for the opportunity to preach Acts chapter 5. My son Patton is down there on the front row. He told me he was hungry <laughs> right before I came up. And then he said, I believe we're going to Mr. Salsa's. <laughs> so with that in mind, I think he was telling me, let's hurry up, Dad, for the task right here. We are going to look at Acts chapter 5, verse 17 through 42, reading the book of Acts this week is a reminder again, looking through it, wrestling with the text here. Uh, I was talking to Pastor Jeremy about how biography has shaped us and encouraged us throughout life, especially for me, missionary biographies, reading those. You can read the text of the methodologies and other things and the theologies, but man, the biographies where you see where people sacrifice, where they give up something to go to share the name of Christ Jesus, where they where they go into hard places, difficult places, biographies such as John G. Patton, who went to the brutal people of the New Hebrides, and the, the two missionaries that went before him were killed and eaten by them, yet he went to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Or Rachel Saint and Elizabeth Elliot went back to the Wudani people after they had killed their brother and her husband, went back to them and showed great love and perseverance and patience and kindness to reach them with the gospel or the courage of someone like a Stan Dale who went into one of the darkest places in Papua New Guinea amongst the Heluk people to proclaim the good news of Christ, the great courage he had to do that. Those things inspire me and as I look to the text today and read these early apostles and what they went through, it should bring that same, I believe, inspiration, if you will. In other words, what has God called us to do? What does he desire for us? What does he want us to do? And I believe through reading this, we'll find that out. Not only what we should expect, but what we should do as well. So let's read this passage together. And I've done this in each service. It's a little bit longer passage, but I feel like we need to read this together. And, and so let's do that, starting in Acts chapter 5, verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees. And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with, them, with him, they called together the council all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. 
Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all, all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutius rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the, the witness of these apostles. The truth that we read here that Jesus Christ came, suffered, died, and rose again, and now he is seated at the throne, on the throne. And Father, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all people in light of that. God, may we not cower in fear at the proclamation of this, but may we boldly proclaim it, even in the face of intimidation, just as the apostles did. God, give us grace now for these things as we look to this passage together. In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage, verse 17, begins with a but, which means there's a contrast that's taking place. The passage before it tells us that multitudes of both men and women were added to the Lord. It tells us that people were coming from towns all around Jerusalem, bringing sick. God was moving. Gospel was spreading. Apostles were proclaiming. Those who were sick were made well again. But... The opposition that began back in chapter 3, verse 18, where Peter and John were charged not to proclaim the good news of Christ anymore, is going to show itself again. By those same who threatened before, they're going to rise up. And it tells us the high priest himself, the, the highest ranking spiritual leader among the Israelites, is coming and he is filled with jealousy. Now, it should not move past us the difference here. The scriptures tell us that the apostles are filled with the Holy Spirit. And being filled with the Holy Spirit, they're calling people to repentance and faith. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, they're proclaiming the good news of Christ. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, they're helping to, uh, by the power of God, make the lame to walk again, the blind to see, healing the sick. They're gathering together all of those who would believe because they're filled with the Holy Spirit. But here, it tells us that the, the high priest and the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. And notice what that does. Instead of bringing peace and instead of proclaiming good news, there's fear, there's intimidation, 
There's rage even that's going to happen against this truth. They're filled with jealousy. Therefore, they are against these apostles and what they are proclaiming. They're opposed to them. And Luke tells us, Luke tells us that those who were in charge here in that parenthetical little statement in verse 17 were the group of the Sadducees. Now, it's important for us to remember who they were. The Sadducees were the more liberal group amongst the, the leaders of Israel. The Sadducees only accepted the Torah, not all of the Old Testament, just the first five books. And really, that's questionable in and of itself because they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in supernatural things like supernatural gifts. They didn't believe in resurrection. They did not believe in the eternal life. They did not believe in heaven or hell. To put it that way, theologically, they're very liberal as they seek to lead the people. But more than just theological in nature, the Sadducees were quite political. The Israelites saw them as politically corrupt. And why is this? Because they had collaborated with Rome. Understand, Israel at this time was under the authority of Rome. And so the Sadducees had made a deal with Rome. You put us in charge, we'll make sure nobody rises up against you. You put us in charge, we'll keep the temple tampered down. We'll keep the people at bay. We won't allow any, anybody to come up with any insurrection. We'll keep peace here in Israel so you don't even have to worry about it in Rome. You put us in charge, everything will be all right. We promise. We'll take care of it. So they had traded this political trade here of, of, of comfort in Israel, offering peace to get power and position in place from the Romans. That's who the Sadducees were, very political. But the problem here is trouble is rising. As the apostles begin to preach and teach in the temple, people are starting to talk. They're starting to come from towns and around. The word is spreading. In fact, you find out as the high priest brings charges to them, he says, all of Israel you filled with these truths, or these, these statements, excuse me, all of Israel you filled with this. And so ultimately, all of Israel is hearing it. And so now the high priest feels as if they have to deal with this. Here are these apostles are proclaiming this Jesus who is the Christ. People are coming. And not only are people coming, you're seeing the power of God on display with those being healed, those being cared for, those being nurtured. They're gathering together and many are believing. The Sadducees have made a political promise to the Romans they'd keep peace. So they have to keep peace by tampering down this seeming insurrection. Ultimately, we must not, we cannot, and if I'm putting points in this sermon, this will be number one. Do not be surprised by hostility to the gospel. Do not be surprised by hostility to the gospel. But I want you to know where this hostility comes from because it seems to be the case that we could just blame the Sadducees in our passage, but the scriptures tell us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, right? Our battle is against the prince and the power of this world. And ultimately what we know is that the hostility toward the gospel that we see every day that we see here in Acts chapter five is coming from Satan himself. Satan's great desire is to stop the gospel from advancing. That's his great desire. His great desire is to stop the gospel from advancing and he will destroy you and he will destroy me in order to pull that off. In fact, the scriptures tell us this. We've seen this before. If you go back to Luke's gospel in Luke chapter four, 
In Luke chapter 4, Jesus had been baptized. He goes out into the wilderness. He doesn't eat for 40 days and for 40 nights, if you remember. And then at the end of it, Satan himself comes to tempt him. And he tempts Jesus three times. I'm I'm interested this morning in this second temptation that he offers. Because in this second temptation, the devil comes to Jesus. And he says in verse 5 of chapter 4, the devil took him up. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus, of course, answers, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. But what was the intent of this temptation for the devil? The intent of this temptation was to stop Jesus from doing what he was sent to do. He was sent to die on a cross. He was sent to redeem his people. And the devil knew that if Jesus was accomplishing what he sent to do, then the devil finally and completely would be dealt with for once and for all. So therefore, Jesus, as the scriptures told us, through the death on the cross and what he uh, does when he's raised from the dead, the scripture says all kingdoms will be his. It tells us that in the Psalms. It tells us that in Isaiah. It tells us that in Daniel. All the kingdoms of the world will belong to him forever he will reign. Jesus will receive all the kingdoms. What the devil wants is for Jesus to think that he can receive them without going to the cross. He wants him not to go there. And so Jesus says, I worship God alone. But this explains what happens a little bit later. Whenever Jesus is sharing with his disciples about what's about to happen, and he says to them, I'm going to suffer at the hands of the Romans, right? I'm going to die, and on the third day I'll be raised. On the third day I'll be raised, Peter pulls him aside. Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him, the scripture says. This shall never happen to you. Speaking of the cross, speaking of dying, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turns loud enough for all to hear and says, get behind me, Satan. Now, why does Jesus refer to Peter as Satan? Because the idea that Jesus was not to go to the cross was satanic by nature. That's what he came for. He came to suffer and he came to die in the place of his people to redeem them. Satan didn't want him to go there. And now when Peter says, Peter says, that's not what's going to happen to you. Jesus says, that's Satan talking, Peter. This is what I've been sent to do. This is what I've been sent to accomplish. That's Satan talking, Peter. Jesus wants to make it clear. Jesus wants to make it clear that he was not going to stop before the cross. He was going to the cross because there at the cross where is where redemption and salvation will finally be found for his people. Satan didn't want that to happen. He's been trying to stop the gospel from day one. Why? Because Jesus tells us the devil is a thief that has come to steal, kill, and destroy. The devil is the deceiver of the whole world, as Revelation 12 says, where he accuses believers both day and night. The devil is a liar, John 8 says. In fact, he's been a liar from the beginning. He's the father of lies. The devil has blinded the people's eyes, 1 Corinthians 4 says, so they cannot see the glory of God. In fact, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And what our passage reminds us here in Acts chapter 5 is that the devil doesn't need any of you. He doesn't need me to play devil's advocate. He's got enough already. He uses whatever he can to stop the gospel. Whoever he can, he can use it to stop by fear, by intimidation, whatever means he can. He is seeking to stop the gospel because we know Jesus did die on the cross. We know Jesus did rise again. 
Satan knows his time is, his days are numbered. And so what is his goal now is to take down as many people as he possibly can with him because he knows it's coming soon. In fact, Peter learning this lesson reminds those he's writing to in 1 Peter, believers he's writing to in 1 Peter. He says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And my friends, the the point here is that that's you. That's me. Notice the fear of this statement. The devil is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And he will use whatever he can to devour us. He'll use fear. He'll use intimidation. He'll use threats. He'll use temptations. He'll use whatever he possibly can to devour us, to get you not to trust, to get you not to follow, to get you not to proclaim the good news of Christ. Especially he'll use the fear of man. Especially he uses that. Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And then he goes on to say, for you are not sitting, setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man, Peter. Ultimately, it comes down to these two things. The scriptures, as we've said before, doesn't have much space for middle ground. It's either one or the other, right? And it comes down to these two things. Are you setting your mind on the things of God or are you setting your minds on the things of man? And the Lord says anybody who tries to stop the gospel is setting their mind on the things of man. Jesus reminds them again in Luke 11, anyone who is not with me is against me. And anyone who does not gather with me scatters. The devil, my friends, scatters. If you look at our passage, we see there in chapter 5 where the Lord is, through his apostles and the proclamation of his good news and the power of the Spirit, is gathering people to himself. Multitudes are joining him. He's calling his people home, calling them to faith and repentance, calling them to join up, be a part of this family of God, calling them out of darkness into the marvelous light. He's calling them to himself. But here we see that Satan comes along and what is his great desire but to scatter them, to separate them to throw fear and intimidation at them so that they may run. And if we, if we come then and understand that, then we, we find this imperative. We must obey God. Every one of us will come down to a moment or multiple moments in our life where we have to make that decision. Will we obey God or will we obey man? And what we find in this passage is that we must obey God. We must obey him. They throw the Apostles in prison, and there that night an angel comes to them during the night, open the prison door so as the, the, the soldiers don't even know, the guards don't even know, we find out the next morning they weren't even aware this happened. This angel of the Lord, a messenger of the Lord comes with the word of God to them, and he says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Before Peter had said, Jesus is the author of life. He's, he's come to bring life, not death. So you go back to the temple. Now understand what is being said of the apostles. They have been arrested in the temple twice. 
They have been threatened already not to speak there again. This now, the angel comes with this message from the Lord and says, go right back to the temple and preach. And I love how the scriptures do this because I'm hoping this is the way I would handle it because it simply says, go right back to the temple, right back where you were arrested, right back where you were threatened, right back where you were told not to go. Go back there and it simply says, they heard this and they went to the temple. I love that. The obedience, because Paul, I mean, Peter is going to say here, whomever God, the Spirit comes, and whom, whoever obeys God has the Spirit. And so here their obedience comes through the power of the Spirit to go right back to the place that they were threatened before. Of course, the high priest comes along. The apostles are teaching there. It says in the morning, the busiest time of the day at the temple was people doing their morning sacrifices they're proclaiming the good news. They go back to find them in prison. They're not there only to discover they're back at the temple preaching. They come back. You're not going to believe this. I don't know what we're going to do with this. They're there. And then the high priest sends them, recognizing that these in leadership are fearful of man. So he said, don't go bring them by force. Ask them to come back. And I love that idea because you know what happens here. Obviously, don't bring them by force. Ask them to return. Bring them back so as you won't be stoned by the people. Recognizing we don't need an insurrection. We don't need Rome to hear about our leaders being stoned. We don't need all that. We've made a bargain with them to keep our position and power. We got to please Rome. We got to please man here. So we don't need all that. So go back and bring them in. But I love the idea because I believe, I'm going ahead and, and, and speculate a little bit here. I think I'm safe in this. I believe the apostles just simply said, oh, you want us to go back to the high priest? Sure, I'll go back. Let's do it. Not in fear, not scared or intimidated. You want us to go back? I'll be happy to. Let's go back. In fact, I think Peter's waiting on this moment to stand before him again. And he says, as they come standing there before the council, the high priest, the whole senate is there. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. One of the most important statements in the New Testament. In fact, this is more of a turning point than you, want to, than, than, than you might want to know or understand. That, everything was hanging in the balance right here with the apostles. If they cowered at this moment, this could have been the end of the church itself. If they decided that, that we're fearful of the high priest and what they may do, this could have been the end of the movement itself. It could have been over. This moment is pivotal in the life of the early church because here the apostles say, it is God that we answer to, not you. Not you. The apostles reply, is not a, just, it's not an act of civil disobedience as some commentators have said. Civil disobedience is the idea that when the government or authorities make a law that is against God, then you have the right to break that law, be disobedient to that law because you follow God's commands. But that's not exactly what's happened in the modern, popular modern sense here. They're not responding at this point to injustice in hope of making a change to stop the injustice. True, injustice abounds with the council's past, but it is not the cause of, nor does it lead to the decision that the apostles have to preach and speak in Jesus' name. The apostles hope for change, but the change they seek is faith and repentance, not freedom of speech. They're not trying to claim some right or some privilege. In fact, they apparently don't even need freedom of speech to speak. They've been told not to, yet they do it. 
They're not trying to claim some right that they deserve as humanity or human beings at this moment. They're simply trying to be obedient to God. And my friends, there's some freedom in that. Not concerned about what the world may say, not concerned about what man may say. They're simply just trying to be obedient to God. And in fact, more, the more persecution that comes, the more boldness and speaking that they do. And why not? They have the truth. The truth was on their side. Peter says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. It shouldn't surprise us that they want to kill Peter after this. Tells us down in verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged, wanted to kill him. Why? Because the high priest said, don't hang his blood on us. And Peter, and Peter said, oh yeah, that's you. This Jesus you killed by hanging him on a tree, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. In other words, you made a ruling. Understand this now. Here is the leadership. Here is the government. Here are the authorities that they are expecting Peter to answer to. We made a ruling. You don't speak in the name of Jesus. And Peter said, oh yeah, you made another ruling. That other ruling was that Jesus must suffer and die on a cross. You ruled him. You sent him there. But God overruled that ruling too. What you thought, you made a ruling, God overruled it. In other words, Peter is saying to them, I do not answer to you. I have a greater authority, the Lord God Almighty. He's the one I answer to. He overruled your ruling before. He'll overrule it now. Don't think that you can overcome him. You must answer to him as well. Peter's response here then builds on this. God has exalted him. He suffered and died. He rose again. He's seated at the throne. He's Lord and Savior. And he did all this so repentance and forgiveness of sins can be proclaimed. That's all we're doing. We're witnesses to that. Jesus died and rose again. He's now seated on the throne. And he did all of this so everyone can have forgiveness of sins. We're just simply witnesses to that. And the Spirit has filled us so we can proclaim it and obey God. That's the truth, Peter says. Why would we answer to you or stop what God has called us to do. We have the truth on our side. So we must obey God. That we there, I do believe, is the church. The church's responsibility is to obey God and his word at all costs. But I also believe it is about you. What's stopping you from boldly proclaiming the good news in the face of fear or intimidation? Is it a matter of belief? Do you not believe? I mean, consider it. If you say that Jesus Christ came, suffered, and died, the Son of God, and died in your place, took your sins, ended them, forgave them of your sins as you believe and trust in him by repentance and faith, and that he reigns on the throne, he's coming back for you. If you believe that, why would you fear any man or anybody that would try to stop you from the good news of that? Why would you cower to them? You're talking about the one who made you, fashioned you with his own hands, saved you, redeemed you, and now reigns forever and has called you to life in him. Why would you bow down to anybody else? Do you really believe? Or is it a matter of fear? Do you not proclaim the good news of Christ out of fear? Either way, whether it's belief or fear, the devil is winning with you. If you're not proclaiming the good news of Christ, the devil's getting what he desires and what he wants. And that's a shame, isn't it? Remember how Revelation 12 tells us that Satan is conquered. Three ways, it says. First, Satan is conquered by the blood of the lamb. There's the truth of God. 
The blood of the lamb recognizes the truth of who God was in his son, Jesus Christ, and how he came to us to die in our place, wash us with our blood. We once were sinners. We've been washed clean in Christ Jesus. And the one who is the accuser of the brethren has no accusations that he can make that will stick to all of those who've been washed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Satan can't touch us or harm us. Ultimately, we are found in Christ having been washed by the blood of the Lamb. And we conquer Satan by depending solely and completely by the blood of Christ Jesus and nothing else for our salvation in life. But not only that, he tells us that Satan is conquered by the word of our testimony. By the blood of the Lamb and by the fact we proclaim the blood of the Lamb to all who would hear Satan is conquered by the blood of the lamb and by the word of the testimony, by the speaking and teaching of the truth. And he's conquered by those who are not afraid to die. In other words, we rest in the truth of God that we've been washed clean by Christ Jesus, our Savior. We proclaim that truth to all who would hear and call them to be washed clean from their sins as well. And we have no fear of what anybody may say or how they may intimidate us because even if they were to take our life, we would be immediately together together with him forever. That's how Satan's conquered. Satan loses when we speak the gospel. No wonder he wants to stop it. Satan loses when we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, of his death and his resurrection, of salvation that can be found in him. Satan loses when that is proclaimed. No wonder he wants to end that. No wonder he wants to stop that and not let it keep going. And he'll use any tactic he can. He'll use anything he can use to try to intimidate us or cause fear in us to stop us from proclaiming that good news. As the apostles spoke, the leaders only got more and more angry. They were raising up to kill him, but a Pharisee named Gamaliel steps up, a leader, it says, a teacher of the law, though he was blind to the fulfillment of it respected, well-educated, opposite of these apostles. These apostles are just fishermen. They, they couldn't believe that they would know all these things. But he comes up with some advice. He starts to say, put them out. Let me talk to you guys for a second here. Understand this. We've seen this type of thing before. He uses one, Theodos, a man who raised up 400 men. They followed him. He died. They dispersed. He uses another, Judas of Galilean, another man who raised up a group during the census and said, we're not going to do this anymore. Rome can't tell us what to do and raised up this group. They followed him. He died. Then they scattered. He says, look at these two movements. His point here is to say they had a leader. They raised up. They followed the leader. The leader died. It was over. Consider Jesus. He was killed. He had a group. He came. He had a group. He raised them up. He was killed. And now here they are. Ultimately, will this come to nothing in the end? If this plan or this undertaking is a man, it will fail, Gamaliel says. Just like the others failed, it will fail just like they failed. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. In fact, you may be found opposing God. As they brought these leaders in, these apostles in to question them, Gamaliel says, with his advice, God's plans, or let me put it this way, God's people cannot be overthrown. 
God's people cannot be overthrown. I love how he says it. He says, if this is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. He doesn't say it. He doesn't say this movement. He doesn't say this teaching. He doesn't say, he says, these people cannot be stopped. You can try. You can try to kill it. You can try to stop it. But if you know that if this is of God, they can't be stopped. God's plans and God's people cannot be overthrown. This, again, is our theme. If it's of God, it has eternal success. If it's of man, it is doomed to failure. We see this throughout Acts. We talked about this last week. They threatened them. They beat them. They did everything they could. As they took Gamaliel's advice, as verse 39 says, they took his advice, and when they had called the apostles back in, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. They threatened them, they beat them. They seek to intimidate them to stop them from proclaiming the good news of Christ Jesus. They've done this before. But notice what verse 41 says. God's people cannot be overthrown. They took the beatings and the threats as a joy. It says, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Do not forget that Jesus had said himself, I did not come so you would not have to suffer. I came so that you can suffer with me. And what we expect then, what we should expect is just as the gospel came to us through suffering, most clearly through the suffering of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the gospel will go out from us through suffering as well. We shouldn't expect any more or any less than what Christ received himself. This is what Jesus tells us. They hate me. They're going to hate you. It's coming after you. Satan's desire is to destroy. His desire is to destroy the gospel of God. And if doing that, he'll destroy anybody in his way. And ultimately, ultimately, the promise here is this. If it's of God, you can't destroy him. You can't stop it. Do what you want to. In fact, all of these apostles, ultimately, other than John, will be killed for their faith. In fact, they're, they're going to name in the next chapter, chapter a few servants, deacons, if you will, to serve in the church. The first one they name, Stephen, gets up and begins to preach. And what do they do to him? They stone him and kill him for proclaiming the good news of Christ. Did that stop the gospel? No. We're evidence of that today. And just as Stephen, being stoned, looks up into heaven and says, Father, Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He recognized they're only agents of Satan himself. His desire was for those people, even the ones stoning him, was to come to faith and repentance. They rejoiced at it. And in verse 42, and every day, in light of the fear, in light of the intimidation, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They did everything they could. They threw them in jail. They told them, don't do it again. We're going to kill you if you do. They tried fear. They tried intimidation. They rejoiced at it. Thankful to be counted worthy to proclaim the good news of Christ, even in the face of it. How is that possible? They were resting. They were resting in the safe and secure arms of their Savior and Lord not in the seeming comfort of the political leaders of that day. Not in what the world could offer them. Not in the stability of a peaceful 
Israel. They weren't resting in that because they knew Israel was not peaceful at all. They weren't resting in the, the political leaders that could, that could make this law or that law pass this or that to make their life more comfortable. They weren't worried or resting in those things. They were resting safe and secure in the arms of their Savior, knowing that whatever, whatever may come in the political nature of this world, in the offerings of man, whatever may happen here, is Christ where we find our safety and our comfort. And how freeing is that, right? When you're resting in Christ and not in this world. You're not dependent every day on what the news cycle is. And bad news doesn't just mean your life's falling apart, right? Because after Christ, it's all good news. That he is not only saving you and redeeming you, but he is bringing you unto himself. And everything that happens for you is for your good if you love him. Carving you into the image of his son, the Lord is caring for us and bringing us safely home. And so if that's the case, we are free. Not bound to this world and what man may say and to the authority there, but bound to Christ. Now you say, Josh, before you go too far, does that mean we don't have to obey the law? Absolutely you do. But don't put your trust there. Don't put your hope there. You trust in Christ who has saved you and redeemed you. You trust in the one who's going to bring you safely home. Their personal security was found in the eternal blood of Jesus, not the authorities of this world. And in that sense then, they were free and secure to proclaim the name of the one who made them free and secure. Free from fear. Free from intimidation. Free from lies. Securing Christ. My friends, are you free and secure today. It will be evidence, I believe, how it was evidenced in the life of these apostles. We will obey God, not man. We will proclaim the good news. We will proclaim what Christ has called us to because each and every one of us has the same mandate through, mandate through the great commission of the Lord. Go and tell. Go and tell. Don't let fear or intimidation stop you. Do you believe? Then trust in him and find your safety and security there. Go and tell. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for the gospel that Christ has brought to us through his death and resurrection. Thank you today, Father, that everybody in this room, if they will repent of their sins and trust in Jesus by faith, they too can have their sins forgiven. They too can find the freedom and the safety and security of resting in your arms. So let no one, Father, still live in fear or intimidation of this world, but let them rest in Christ. God, your word says that Satan has blinded eyes to see these truths, but we got, God, we know that your light can shine in the deepest and darkest of places. And so, Father, may you open eyes today by the power of your spirit to see the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him. And may your people, Father, not live in fear, but live in freedom. Through their freedom, may they proclaim the good news of Christ. God, thank you for all that you have given us and all that you've called us to. Help us to fulfill those callings by proclaiming your name. All of this we pray in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If you're here today and you are still living in fear, you know it. Maybe today's the day you say, I want to trust in Christ. No longer do I fear, but I have freedom in him. You trust in his salvation and give your life to him. 
Maybe it's the day that you said, I've been living in fear as a believer and I'm ready to speak the gospel. My neighbor needs me too. My friends need me too. My family need me too. I'm ready to preach the gospel. Today, remind yourself of who God is and what he's done for you. Renew yourself again to proclaim that good news and look for those opportunities as we stand together and sing.